Is it an impossible task to bring a successful TV show to film? Come with us as we dissect the first Mission Impossible movie. This is Dan Silvestri and Tom Pizzotto with SpyMovieNavigator.com, the worldwide community of spy movie fans, spy movie podcasts, videos, discussions, and more. For the most part, many spy movies have had their origin from books. You've got James Bond from the Fleming novels, Born Identity from Robert Ludlum's books. You've got Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan stories, John le Carre's books, etc. However, in 1996, Paramount Pictures and Cruise Wagner Productions released the first film of Mission Impossible series based on the TV show. Other spy-based TV shows wouldn't get their U.S. big screen debuts until years later, namely I Spy in 2002, Get Smart in 2008. Yeah, even The Man from Uncle in 2013. Yeah, wait a long time. Man from Uncle in 2013. It was a pretty bold move by uh, Cruz and Wagner and Paramount. Now, the TV show of Mission Impossible ran for seven seasons from from 1966 to 1973, at least in the U.S. This was back when they had 27 episodes in a season, not counting the pilot in season one. The show ended up winning 19 awards and was nominated for 39. There was also a two-season reboot of the show in 1998 to 1999. All totaled, there were over 200 episodes of the show. So the question again is, how do you bring a successful TV show to the big screen? Well, one answer to that question would be to bring in one of the biggest box office names in Hollywood right now, uh, Tom Cruise, to play the lead character. Add a lot of very cool stunt work, bring Brian De Palma in to direct it, and keep Lalo Schifrin's awesome theme song. The theme song is terrific. I mean, when you hear that playing, you, I mean, you just you just smile. I mean, it's just like, yeah, that's cool. And they, and they weave it throughout the film at key points just to kind of add to that punch and excitement. If you're on our website, for every section we're going to be talking about here, like pre-titled sequence and so on, there's going to be a link to a movie clip that's pertinent to the stuff we're talking about in that section. As well as then we also have description of what that clip's about. Exactly. Let's start with Mission Impossible's pre-title sequence. Now, for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to use the terms Mission Impossible 1 or maybe even MI1 to refer to this movie, even though it technically doesn't have that name. It's technically just Mission Impossible. But to help delineate between the other Mission Impossible movies, 2 and 3 actually have the number attached to them, or the TV show, we'll just probably just call it MI1. So if we look at MI1's pre-title sequence, the first thing to note is there is a pre-title sequence. Now, the James Bond series of films made the pre-title sequence a mainstay of spy films. Most spy and action movies today include pre-title sequences. In Mission Impossible 1, the movie opens with the IMF team, and IMF is the Impossible Mission Force, trying to obtain the name of a contact of someone in Minsk. The name is Dmitry Medvedev that they're trying to get from this Russian. We don't know at first who any of the people are in the room. No names are used other than Dimitri's. We don't know why they want the name, and it's actually irrelevant to pretty much anything to do with the rest of the movie. This scene really sets up the film for TV fans as it answers one of the concerns they would have. How much will this feel like the TV show? Actually, this scene is kind of like the scene in Godfather Part Two. In Godfather Part Two, Senator Pat Geary wakes up next to a dead woman. He can't remember what happened. I don't know how it happened. I passed out, he says. He'd been set up and was framed. He hadn't really killed her. In Mission Impossible pre-titled sequence here, 
the Russian has a similar situation. There appears to be a dead woman, and he's saying he doesn't know how it happened. So on our website, you could actually click on the link there, and you could actually see that scene from the Godfather film. This pre-title sequence does set up one plot point in the film. Jim Phelps is not on this mission. We find out later he was in Chicago at the Drake Hotel for a meeting. This becomes important later and isn't highlighted in the pre-title sequence. Now, two minutes into this scene, the guy who asks the questions and kills the Russian walks over to the anteroom and he removes his mask. <laughs> right? I mean, he reveals the agent, Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise. Yes, the masks are there. The TV fans can feel at home. Yeah, and the other cool thing about that scene, the walls come down, and you see the whole thing was a setup. It was a stealth setup. And that's very much like how the TV show was. The Mission Impossible force got in and out of their mission without the bad guys even knowing that they were there. And then they'd walk away, the music would play, the guys, the, the bad guys would be shocked. It was like, oh, my God, how did this happen? And the Mission Impossible music would play, and these guys would be walking out like into the sunset. So... With the walls coming down, to, to me, that was like, oh, yeah, that's just like the show. So that was good. I felt good about that. Actually, the, the, when you you mentioned the masks coming off for the first time in the movie, and, of course, you see this in the in the TV show a lot. And in, in this first film, Mission Impossible 1, the, it, it kind of reminds me of that the, the three walnut shells with the P on there. What's that game the, called? The, the shell game. The shell game. Well, that's a good name for it, which, which walnut shells. Anyway, this this kind of reminds me. Mission Impossible 1 reminds me of the shell game because you, you're supposed to track where the P is on the, the three shells, and most of the time it's a con game. In this movie, in Mission Impossible 1, the masks are coming off so frequently. I mean, they use it a lot. You never know who's who in if someone's wearing a mask or not wearing a mask and and, and it kind of reminds me of that game it's like yeah exactly try try to figure out where, yeah. what's going on at yeah. some point where's the p <laughs> yeah who who is it you're talking to yeah that was cool yep one of the goals of the first mission impossible film had to be to show tv show fans that the movie should feel like it is really based on the mission impossible television show as they remember it the pre-title sequence and title sequences meet this goal if a viewer hadn't seen the TV show, it's not that big a deal. But a few very important things come out of the first six minutes of the film that TV fans would expect to see. You've got the mask. You've got the Lalo Schifrin music. In the, in the title sequence itself, and I'm going to talk about this more, we see little snippets of what's to come in the show. We see the, that there's a con game. And these are things that if you are a fan of that TV show, you want that in this movie and you get it right up front. If I'm a TV show fan, the Mission Impossible TV show, I'm going to feel right at home. Unlike in this movie, in future Mission Impossible films, the pre-title sequences do set up the rest of the films. The only nugget we really get out of this film's pre-title is the fact that Jim Phelps wasn't there. And the Bourne series handles things a bit differently. Yeah, that's right, Dan. The title in all of the films is just a simple title. The title pops up by itself and no other credits are given until the end of the film. Very different than what happens in, in the Bond or Mission Impossible films. In The Bourne Identity, the pre-title sequence starts with Jason Bourne floating in the water. He's picked up by someone on a fishing boat, and that's followed by the title appearing about a minute 44 seconds into it. The Bourne Ultimatum has a simple title at about 3.50 into the film. The Bourne Supremacy starts with the simple title to open, so it doesn't have a pre-title at all. And then The Bourne Legacy has a simple title at about two minutes into the movie. 
And then finally, Jason Bourne doesn't even have a pre-title sequence. It just starts with the title and jumps right into the film. So it looks like the Bourne series doesn't have much of a pre-title sequence, Tom. I mean, we saw Bond. They has have pre-title sequences. You see Mission Impossible has pre-title sequences. So was Bond the first one with pre-title sequences? It doesn't seem like it. No, he, he actually was the one probably with the first spy movie with pre-titles. Mm. But really, we can go back to 1930, and there was a film called Viennese Nights. And there's a very short sequence of a beer garden and a song is being sung before the title sequence comes in and then the movie starts. That's the earliest one that I found. But if you actually go online and start to look this up, there's some people who say, well, maybe the beer garden scene isn't really a pre-title sequence because it's too short. The Guinness Book of Facts and Feats, the second edition, says it's the 1939 film Destiny Rides Again. Other places have answered the, the 1930 film Viennese Nights that we just talked about, the 1934 film The Crime of Passion, or the 1941 film The Wolfman. We'll have a podcast devoted to examining these pre-title sequences that you'll be able to listen to. Yeah, again, even though these weren't spy movies per se, these other movies where the pre-title sequences are that Tom has researched, it shows you how an, a, a movie can impact what happens in other movies and how the spy movie guys kind of latched onto this concept. Well, another thing the Mission Impossible pre-title sequence gives us is the use of masks as a disguise. Growing up the television show Mission Impossible, that was our first exposure to the use of masks as a disguise. You're watching the show, you see it used all the time. However, the concept is not new to the TV show. In our research, there are a number of films and shows that predated Mission Impossible that use masks. They mainly are used for two purposes. One is to cover up some kind of disfigurement or distortion, like the Phantom of the Opera or Mystery of the Wax Museum. And the second is to deceive someone into believing a person is someone else. Like in Star of Midnight, Peter Gunn from Russia with Love, and the list of Adrian Messenger. Obviously, Mission Impossible uses the second approach. We'll provide a more thorough examination of the use of masks in films and television in a future podcast on that very topic. The mask scene spills into the title sequence. It moves right into the fuse being lit. The title appears to be designed to further hook those TV show fans. First, there's Lalo Schifrin's wonderful Mission Impossible theme song and that lit fuse which instantly brings the viewer back to the TV series. Lalo's awesome theme. It's back. It. It's I love back. It. The next part of the title sequence keeps the nostalgia going. As the music plays and the opening title credits are shown, snippets from the rest of the movie are shown. This lets us in on who some of the characters we will see are, as well as gives us a glimpse of some of the upcoming action. Not too much, just a tease. The TV series did this as well in its opening titles. It's a nice touch that they carried over for this film, but unfortunately, they didn't carry it over to Mission Impossible 2 and Mission Impossible 3. Yeah, I, I like consistency, but who knows? Maybe they were experimenting a little bit here. Yeah, they, but they at least brought it back starting with Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Yeah, I do like it. Now, one thing about the snippets that hits home for me is how much it feels like an overture to the movie. Much like in a Broadway musical, there's usually an overture to get you familiar with the music and makes you want to hear more. This title sequence gives the audience a taste and makes us want more. Yeah, I mean, it's a clever technique, and it works well. What will happen next? I want more. That's, how, well, that's what you're thinking when you see it. So I think it's great. So how do we find out what the mission is here? We get that in the mission briefing scene. 
First, we get a recording that explains the mission. So the mission that Jim Phelps gets is that his team has to go and stop somebody from delivering a non-official cover list or a knock list. This is a list that has the names and aliases of the agents who the government disavows knowledge of, but the government sponsors. And that's really what Ethan Hunt is, as we'll learn later in the film here. So that's the first that's the first part of what we get out of the mission briefing is we get the understanding their goal is to stop this theft from happening. And second, we're introduced or reintroduced to Jim Phelps, the only character returning from the TV show. Peter Graves played him in the TV series. In the movie, he's played by John Voight. He is the character who quarterbacks the mission. Well, Peter Graves was asked to do a cameo in the film. But he declined after finding out what they do to his character in this movie. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that more with the clip of uh, Jim Phelps and Ethan at the restaurant. Yeah, he, he was genuinely upset. As was I. Phelps is riding in the plane. He gets asked if he wants to see a, a movie. They give him a movie to see, and it's actually his mission briefing. He gets the tape running, and it says the, who the team is, and it adds, your mission, Jim, should you choose to accept it, there's the, as always, should you or any member of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow all knowledge of your actions. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. These are all brought forward for the Mission Impossible TV fan. Yes, yes, yes. They hit all those checkboxes. They have the tape mission that self-destructs. They have the your mission, should you choose to accept it, and the disavowed message. This film feels like it's on the right track. In the television show, there was the tape scene, your mission should you choose to accept it, followed by the dossier sequence, which is putting the team together in the first two seasons. These are combined in the movie with the assignment and team designation all in one tape. The good part about the pre-title sequence, the titles, and mission briefings are that if you're familiar and you remember the TV show, you're feeling nostalgic. However, if you don't know the TV show, you're still getting what you need to know as these sequences set the movie plot very well. So they, they did a fine balance balancing act here, tipping their hats to the people who are familiar with the TV show. Yet, if you don't have familiarity with the TV show, you're still getting everything you need to know from the movie. Perfect. Two little fun facts regarding the heritage of parts of this revolve around the this tape will self-destruct and the secretary would disavow phrases. In the Mission Impossible television series and in the film, the phrase, this tape will self-destruct, is used after the mission is described. The television show debuted in 1966. However, in the 1962 film Dr. No, M tells James Bond, I'll have a set of background papers to date delivered to you at the airport in a self-destructor bag. This is the first discussion we found in a spy film about a self-destructing background material. We aren't positive Mission Impossible took this and ran with it, or it's just a coincidence. But it does appear in the film Dr. No four years before the TV show Mission Impossible comes out. Yeah. So who knows? Kind of interesting. There's also the, the phrase, should you or any member of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your action. That's obviously the blueprint for Mission Impossible. But this concept appears in an adaptation of of something that happened in an earlier spy movie. The 1959 film called Operation Amsterdam is based on a true story where the leader who was sending three men out of, on a mission 
says, Incidentally, if caught, we cannot help you. They were to get the industrial diamonds out of Holland before the Germans could get them and build more tanks and planes and machinery. Now, you look back at one of the Bond movies from 1971, Diamonds Are Forever, you see James Bond in Amsterdam. In the book, the novel by Ian Fleming, he doesn't go to Amsterdam. So we kind of think this is a little nod in Diamonds Are Forever to this old movie, Operation Amsterdam. So the self-destructor bag from Dr. No and, incidentally, if caught, came from earlier films and possibly were enhanced in Mission Impossible. We'll see this played out again in the vault scene later in the film. And one more fun fact. That lighter that Jim uses on the plane when he gets the mission is is a Dunhill Rolagas. I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce that lighter. Um, It's a lighter that's used in many James Bond films. It's the same brand of lighter as the one he gets as a gift from Della and Felix in License to Kill. We then move to the apartment sequence. In the TV show, there's a scene which shows the plan, which is created in a safe house. In the movie here, we get Jim Phelps. He assembles the team. He explains to them what the plan is, what the mission is, and it pretty much follows the format of the TV series here. Now, really what this scene does in this movie is establishes that Jim Phelps was actually in Chicago at the Drake Hotel during the time of the mission that they did in the pre-title sequence where they killed that Russian guy after getting the name. In Kiev. In Kiev. That, you know, that's really what the purpose of this scene here is. It sets up the fact that Phelps was actually at the Drake, not with the team. And the fact that he was at the Drake is going to be a critical, critical piece for the rest of the film. One of the members of the team is Jack Harmon. Now, we know gadgets always play a role in spy movies now. Jack Harmon, his role is like that of Q from the James Bond films or Barney Carlier who played by Greg Morris, who was called the tech expert, actually, from the Mission Impossible television shows. He's the gadget guy. And in in this film, Jack shows Sarah Davies the glasses with the cameras embedded in the frame. And it's actually, those glasses are used twice in the movie. One is they film Galitzin stealing the knock list, or what he thinks is the knock list. And then it's going to play another important role later. At the end of the movie, it plays a huge role. And another gadget. Now, one thing that I like is there's not too many gadgets. This kind of has more of a, an older Bond film style in that there's only a few gadgets. The other gadget that he does is he has this gum that's, or it looks like a stick of gum, that's red side and a green side. And if you smash them together, they'll go ahead and blow up. And he gives this gum to Ethan. Yeah. With about a five-second delay, it's going to blow. Yeah, yeah it's just going to go. Yeah. He, he actually seems to me to be closer to the type of Q as Ben Wishaw plays him in Skyfall and Inspector rather than Desmond Llewellyn's version in 17 of the earlier Bond films. With both Wishaw's Qs and Emilia Estevez's Jack Harmon, only a few gadgets are used, but they always seem to be just what's needed for key parts of the mission. Desmond's Q seems to have a gadget for everything. One difference in my mind is that Ben is more about the business and relatively serious at most times where Jack really likes to crack jokes. I mean, I can't imagine either Ben or Desmond's cue saying, hasta lasagna, don't get any on you, well, as Jack does. Yeah, I agree on the Ben part. I think he, he wouldn't say that. But Q, you know, you got to remember in GoldenEye, there were a couple of scenes in GoldenEye. One is where Bond is in Q's lab 
and he picks up what looks to be a submarine sandwich, and Q yells at him, don't touch that. It's my lunch. I, uh, yeah. All right. He's got a little humor there. Yeah. And then there's another part in that movie where he invents, of course, Q invents the pen where you click it three times and it activates the bomb that's going to be in the pen. And he shows Bond how it's going to be used. And he puts it in the pocket, uh, the lab coat pocket of one of the mannequins there who's standing against the wall. And the thing explodes after the, the, the timer goes off. And Bond laughs a little bit. And then Q looks at him and says, don't, don't say it. The writing's on the wall. So yeah, okay. Uh, I guess there there yeah, is a little more on. humor out of Q than I, I really remember. Yeah, yeah, he, he was good. I thought. Now, wh- one other point I'd say here on this too is Jack Harmon has a pretty small role in the movie. He gets killed off really early. Emilio Estevez plays plays Jack Harmon. He does it as an uncredited role, so he's actually not in the credits, and it really appears to have been a payback because Tom Cruise did an uncredited role in one of Emilio's earlier movies. So it looks like they just kind of traded off on the uncredited roles. Interesting. I didn't know that. So after we're introduced to the gadgets, we move along to the first mission. And and that mission is explained in that briefing tape is to get the knock list from uh, Galitzin. So in the film, Phelps says, we photograph Galitzin stealing the knock list, follow him to his buyer, and apprehend both of them. So that's really what the mission is really all about. Now, one interesting tidbit may tie the 1996 film that we're talking about here, Mission Impossible, back with the film we mentioned earlier with the masks called The List of Adrian Messenger. In the film Mission Impossible, the voice on the mission briefing tape tells the team their mission is to arrest Alexander Galitzin. Galitzin supposedly sold half the knock list and plans to steal the other half. The knock list has the agent's real names with their code names. Galitzin's name appears to be homage to one of two people. It's either the famed art director Alexander Galitzin or the Soviet KGB defector Anatoly Galitzin. We've been unable to confirm which one. Among Alexander Galitzin's 336 credits in IMDb, there is the 1963 film The List of Adrian Messenger, the film with all the masks we talked about earlier. Although his immediate family took a different spelling, his family name was originally spelled just like it is in the titles for, or the credits for Mission Impossible. Now, Anatoly Galitsyn defected from Russia in 1961 and wrote two books on KGB leadership practices. Again, two different guys that they could have pulled this from, but we're betting that it's one of those two that they're actually paying homage to. This first mission scene starts at the embassy in Prague at a party. Ethan Hunt poses as a U.S. Senator John Walzer, chair of the U.S. Armed Services, and he's got a mask on to make him look like the senator. The mission starts off fine, but goes bad fast. Ethan Hunt and Sarah Davies get the picture of Galitzin stealing the knock list. Yeah, they use the, the, the glasses the, to the, do that. Yeah, terrific, right? Things go bad as Jack Harmon struggles to get the systems working. In fact, he has such troubles that he ends up dying from an elevator gone rogue. Jim Phelps tells the team that someone is onto them and to abort the mission. He runs across Charles Bridge, gets shot, and falls into the water. The rest of Ethan's team gets killed, except for Ethan Hunt and Claire. Claire was Phelps' wife. At least that's what we are led to believe. However, later, 
we find out that Jim Phelps survived too. One nice touch is that Jack Harmon has been billed as a guy who can hack into any system. Now, I've spent 30 years in the information technology field, and I hate it when a film has someone hack into anything in two seconds. They never have any problems in the movies. It's just like, oh yeah, we can find this camera that we didn't know existed in two seconds and find out what's going on. Jack struggles in part due to the fact that he's sabotaged by Jim, but those struggles really probably are closer to reality than what we normally see in films. This scene shows us the mission as it goes awry. We find out what happened later, but the technique used here is to fool the audience, us as we're watching the film, and the IMF team who are in the film, and make them think that they're seeing one thing while something else is really happening. This is the classic shell game that we talked about before, Tom. Yeah, exactly. The Mission Impossible television show relied on confidence games. Yeah, the, the original production team for the TV show, they were really big fans of the book The Big Con and the movie The Sting. Ah. And the characters in the show and the person reading or watching would get fooled into believing that they were seeing one thing while really another thing was going on. And the show was terrific at that. This technique was used on the show all the time. The stealth idea that things were happening and the enemy didn't even know it was happening until the very end, and they were all shocked in the music plays. It was just terrific and absolutely ideal in the TV show. Yeah, that that actually really, really helped with the TV show because it's like they just totally fooled those people. Yeah. I mean, that was the whole concept of the show. Stealth, secret, boom, behind the scenes. This mission is one of those scenarios, as we'll talk about in the upcoming restaurant scene discussion. In the television series, it was not uncommon for IMF agents to go to the other side and go bad. The main plot of those shows then was generally to catch those turncoats. And this gets carried over into this movie for sure. In what we're calling the restaurant scene, Ethan Hunt meets with Kittredge, his boss, or really, I guess, Jim Phelps' boss, um, at the aquarium restaurant after the failed mission. Kittredge lets Ethan Hunt know the mission was really a decoy, there was suspicion that one of his agents had turned to the other side. The mission really was a setup with another IMF team monitoring Jim Phelps' team. Ethan called it a mole hunt. So here you got a mole maybe deep inside the organization again, a lot like later film Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yep, exa- exactly. Now, the CIA had intercepted a message from someone named Max who wanted to buy the knock list from the turned agent. Max called it Job 314. Job 314 ended up being the attempted stealing of the knocklists in the first mission in the film, which is the whole thing with the Galitzin guy. Kittredge tells Ethan that he's the prime suspect with the words, and like you said, you survived. Ethan freaks out and uses the only gadget he got from Jack Harmon to escape the restaurant. The gadget he uses is an explosive device which he throws into, onto a very large aquarium. This is a very well-done scene with the aquarium exploding and the contents floods the area as Ethan escapes. There's a mix of reality and some CGI, but that's handled very well here. Now, the use of exploding or crashing aquariums is not new. Examples of this can be found in many films that predate Mission Impossible. In James Bond's Octopussy, Bond disposes of the chainsaw henchman by crashing his head into a fish tank. In License to Kill, a guard shoots the fish tank. Bond uses this to help get his upper hand in this fight. In the film's Lethal Weapon 2, Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo, Total Recall, Push, Erasure, Jackie Chan's First Strike, and A Low Down Dirty Shame, all have scenes where aquariums are destroyed as part of the plot. 
one interesting curiosity is that Mission Impossible 1, Eraser, and Jackie Chan's First Strike were all released in 1996. Oh, that, that was not a very good year for aquariums. <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> we're going to move on to the next section, Finding Max. Again, on the website, there's a link to this clip called Finding Max, and you'll see the entire clip there. So after meeting with Kittredge, Ethan decides that he really must steal the knock list in order to try to catch Max and hopefully figure out who this turned agent really is. Therefore, you know, he's got to find Max. When he's trying to find Max online, Ethan comes to the realization that Job 314 is really Job 314 from the Bible. He sees the Bible at the safe house and he reads the passage, Job 314. And he uses this to track Max online and sets up a meeting. Now, it's it's really funny to me watching this scene 20 years after the film's release. The searches that Ethan does are really quite comical by today's standard. In fact, he even uses an email address that's technically impossible to use. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny how that is. Only a techie would notice that. <laughs> yeah, a techie would notice it, right? But most of this film holds up over time, but this scene, I think, really does show its age. So now Ethan's going to meet with Max for the first time. Again, there's another link to the clip on the on our site for that meeting. Ethan tells Max that he's going to steal the knock list and he wants to be paid for it. Although he's really going to steal the knock list, this is only a setup so he can try to catch whoever the turncoat agent really is. He warns Max that the disc she got from the first mission was likely booby-trapped and will let the CIA know her location as soon as she tries to load the data file. Max doesn't believe him, of course, but she puts the data file in and the CAA shows up and Max and her team and Ethan barely get away. This sets up the trust now between Max and Ethan. Vanessa Redgrave is just awesome as Max. Oh, she she's awesome, and I think there's actually really good interplay between her and Tom Cruise. I, I love this scene. This is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. She there's no acting with her. It's just you you believe she's Max. I mean, she's Max. There's yep. there's no actress there. Yeah, she's she's fabulous. She, it's just terrific in this scene. Well, she's actually terrific in most things she does. Yeah. Now the balcony that the, her guy looks out and says, "Oh shoot, the CIA is coming." That's in Uprasny Brani in Newtown in Prague. So you could actually see that building. You know, I can't go in there, obviously. It's a private residence, I think. But you could actually go see that balcony from the street level and see what he was looking. You've got to love filming locations. Yeah, once again. The next clip is the knock list heist. And although Mission Impossible is a spy movie, 11 and a half minutes of it are actually a heist. Now, Ethan has to go steal the knock list, so that's this heist piece here. The knock list is on a file at a computer in CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. And I've skipped a few things here. There's a scene where Luther and Krieger and Claire and Ethan are all talking about what they're going to need to do and that the knock list is, resides on this computer in Langley, and they're going to have to break in to go get it. And Ethan tells them that the room or vault where the computer lives is very heavily protected. There's sound, touch, temperature sensors. It really is going to require a gutsy heist in order to get the file. They've decided the only way to get to the computer with the file is to enter the vault from above. Have Ethan be lowered into the vault without him touching anything except the keyboard. 
Now, this is actually a really cool scene, my favorite scene in the movie. Tom Cruise does, like he does in most of the stunts that happen in Mission Impossible, he does this scene himself. And, and like I said, it's my favorite scene in the movie. It even has the oops, I almost fell part where Krieger lets the rope slip. I mean, I don't know why what it is, but in all of these type of movies, there's that high tension and then there's the oops and it almost goes bad on them, but then they catch it in the nick of time. Got to scare the audience. You've You've got to have that we almost blew it part added to these tension scenes. The clip we put on the website is only two minutes of the whole 11 minute scene. But it's really intriguing to watch the athleticism that Ethan Hunt, portrayed by Tom Cruise here, does and and what he has to have in terms of the core strength to flip over and hold himself the way he's doing it when he goes to try to get the copy of that file off of the computer at Langley. It's a pretty intriguing scene. There's a few things that bother me a little bit about it. One is they talk about the noise, yet there's noise that all over the place in the thing where like he's listing out the knock list and there's a noise that plays in the background. You hear him put the ta- the disc in and there's a click that happens when he does that. So there are noises there that kind of make you think, well, maybe it's a little louder than it should, should be, but um, they, you've got to suspend disbelief or whatever. That yeah. Is. Willing suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Even when the knife falls at the end, it falls yeah. all the way down and thuds into the, keyboard section there and that that doesn't set off the alarm this scene it's fabulous but it's obviously modeled after the work of jules dawson dawson was the director of the 1964 heist film top copy he received two academy award nominations for this film and peter ustinov won a best supporting actor oscar he also directed the 1955 heist film rafifi and he won the best director at the Cannes festival in 1955 for this the heist scenes in these two films have key ideas which are used in the heist scene in Mission Impossible 1. First, all three films have a lengthy planning discussion about how to deal with the alarm and how sensitive the room is to sound, and the floor is, in, in the case of Tipkapi, how the floor is sensitive to touch, as is in Mission Impossible. All three of the films also have the robbers coming into the area from the ceiling. One of the most noticeable ideas in all three films is the lack of score and almost silence during the three heists. In Rafifi, the robber climbs down a rope into the area to be robbed. The heist takes up to almost 30 minutes of film time and not a word is spoken, nor is a score played. In fact, there were actually some grief that Jules got from having that much silence. Everybody's like, how can you have 30 minutes of silence in your movie? I mean, there are whatever natural noises appear in terms of footsteps and the like. However, this scene in Rafifi is extremely quiet, and it really added to the tension of the scene. Top Copy's heist, on the other hand, is mostly silent, but there is some brief dialogue between the robbers. Again, there's no score. In the Mission Impossible 1 heist, there's more background noise in the scenes interspersed with William Dunlow's, what do we call them, stomach problems? Yeah. When, you know, after she dropped that stuff in his coffee. However, in the vault itself, there's very little dialogue and noise. Yeah, actually, there's a couple other movies, like The Thief from the 1950s, where there's, there's no dialogue. Westworld has, I think, 14 and a half minutes of silence, no dialogue. The movie, not the TV show. Yes, and Hell in the Pacific has 20 minutes, I think, of no dialogue. So there's, there's lots of lots of movies out there. Like Silence that. can really be used to build tension. Yeah. 
Right. Some other key elements from Topkapi heists have to do with how they entered the robbery area. In Topkapi, the robber, who's played by Gilles Segal, he's lowered headfirst from the ceiling using ropes. In Mission Impossible, Ethan is lowered headfirst via either a cable or a rope. It's kind of hard to tell which. In both Topkapi and Mission Impossible 1, the robber then spins and goes from headfirst into a horizontal suspension in the air. Both films also have that rope slip, and the robber just misses hitting the floor, which would sound the alarms. In Topkapi, Julio has a very large light attached to his head. This thing's huge. In Mission Impossible, Ethan has a much smaller light attached to his head. After seeing the light in Mission Impossible 1, it's almost comical to see this big light in Topkapi. It just goes to show how technology changes in a 25-year time span. All right, let's get back to Mission Impossible. After this heist in Langley, Ethan sees that the Bible he used in the safe house was stamped, placed by the Gideons in the Drake Hotel, Chicago. This is where he figures out what really happened and that Jim Phelps is the turncoat. In the apartment sequence earlier in the film, Ethan Hunt tells Jim Phelps that, hey, they missed him in Kiev. And Jack Harmon, the gadget guy, asks, were you on some cushy recruiting assignment again? When Ethan asks, where'd they put you up this time, the plaza? Jim answers, the Drake Hotel, Chicago. Ah, yes, 24-hour room service, chauffeured cars. Seems like a little background info for us. As to the fact that the team has been in Kiev, Jim wasn't there, and Jim was in Chicago at the Drake Hotel. Ethan figured that if Jim was looking at the Bible from the Drake Hotel, though, it was to communicate with Max. This comes out in the next scene we're going to take a look at with Jim and Ethan at the restaurant. We just saw the stamp in the Bible that Ethan was looking at placed by the Gideons in the Drake Hotel Chicago. How important a role now the Drake Hotel plays in the film, yet it never appears in the film. There's not a single shot of the Drake Hotel in the film anywhere. The Drake Hotel in Chicago is an outstanding hotel, and many dignitaries from U.S. presidents to foreign dignitaries have stayed here. So it's classy and classic. Princess Diana, Cary Grant, Grace Kelly, Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe both of whose initials carved in the bar in the Cape Cod room were still there until the restaurant closed in 2017. This is a cool hotel. Even though it's never shown in the film, this is one hotel that has a huge impact on the film and the entire storyline. You remember Ethan Hunt discovers that Job 314 actually refers to the Bible, Job chapter 3, verse 14, And when he finds the Bible in Jim's possessions, he opens it and sees it on the left-hand inner page, stamped, placed by the Gideons in the Drake Hotel, Chicago. This draws Ethan into thinking that perhaps the mole is Jim. And this piece of spy work forever changes the outcome of the story. So for a hotel whose image never appears in the film, it has a huge impact on the film until the end. So we thought it'd be a good idea to take a visit to the hotel in Chicago and see what this place is all about, since it played such a prominent role in the film. The exterior of the building is refined 1920s elegance. It's on the corner of Michigan Avenue, the Magnificent Mile, and Walton Street, not far from the famed Lakeshore Drive. The Drake stands as an iconic high-end offering with three restaurants, a bar, and more. And that was a nice bar. We, we spent a little time in there. Yes, that was cool. Classic cocktails, too. Absolutely. Delicious. 
And so an interesting fact about the Bible can be seen when Ethan Hunt finds the Bible stamped with the Drake Hotel Chicago. You can barely make out on the right-hand page in the film, second paragraph, the words that look like new, international, referring to the version of the Bible. So we think the Bible's just a prop because the Gideons do not distribute the new international version of the Bible. And how do you know that? We called them and asked, and they distribute only the King James Version or the English Standard Version. So we asked somebody at the Drake if they had a Bible. And they said, no, they don't put Bibles in the rooms anymore because we wanted to see if actually we can get that one and see the stamp and we were going to film that. Yeah, that would have been cool to see that yeah, stamp. see the stamp. But no, they don't, they don't even have them anymore. So the Drake Hotel provides the clue in Mission Impossible 1, yet the building never makes a screen appearance. All this makes Ethan Hunt ask, why, Jim? Why? Our next clip has Jim Phelps tracking down Ethan and has a discussion in a restaurant explaining that Kittredge was really the mole. When he talks through how Kittredge did it, clips are shown with what really happened. This is where the audience sees that Jim was really the mole. Ethan plays along even though he knows Jim is the mole because he's already got the clue from the Bible. Yes. So he's already got it figured out. In fact, he does ask, why Jim, why? And Jim thinks Ethan's asking him, why, Jim, did Kittredge do that? Why? Where Ethan was really saying to Jim, Jim, why did you do it? He's looking right at him. Why did you do it? He lets Jim explain why someone would become a mole and doesn't let Jim know that he's on to him. In fact, when they leave here, Jim has no idea that Ethan knows or suspects that he's really the mole. As we've discussed elsewhere, there definitely was an attempt to pull the TV show fans into this movie. However, when I saw this scene in the theater, this is the one that really made me mad because this is where I realized that the good guy, Jim <laughs> Phelps, was bad. And they caught some grief for it from the TV show fans, but this scene is where it just kind of all twists on you and your head just kind of went, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> what happened to Jim being the good guy? So now we're going to take a look at the train scenes. After Ethan gets the knock list, he needs to meet with Max and the mole so they can catch the mole. Jim Phelps. The second meeting with Max happens on a high-speed train that's to cross the English Channel. The train provides three scenes that are really the climax of the movie. The first clip on the site of the train scenes has Ethan providing the knock list to Max. Max had paid Ethan for the knock list and wanted to upload it. Luther uses an electronic jamming device to keep Max from uploading the file before they hit the channel. Given that this was filmed in 1996 and that they were on a moving train, I can just imagine how slow that phone line was that Max was trying to use to be able to upload this file. Yeah, such an important file, and they were trying to beat, uh, beat the tunnel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And the next scene, it gets, it gets really fun. Claire walks into the luggage room in the train and sees Jim. She talks with Jim about how he's the mole and how they will set up Ethan and take the money. Of course, at this point, Jim stands up and pulls off a mask. Another mask. Dun, 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 the shell game. In reality, she's been talking with Ethan. Ethan had made Claire believe that he was Jim with the use of the mask, of course. Then the real Jim walks out from behind another section of the luggage car. Ethan gives her the money and then puts on a pair of glasses with a camera built in, letting Jim know that Kittredge has seen 
that he was still alive. Now, I actually found that a little interesting because Kittredge looks, on, I think it was his watch or whatever, for yes. a monitor to see to see the that it's Jim. But how did Kittredge know to look at that point in time that the camera would be showing that shot? Yeah, maybe a, it, it dinged or something like a Dick Tracy watch. You know, yeah, I don't know. It just it cracked you know, He up. did. He looks at it immediately, and he sees Jim there going, oh, geez. So then Jim kills Claire and has a quick fight with Ethan before escaping out of the luggage car. Now, I don't know why he kills Claire and then doesn't kill Ethan, but, you know. Because none of these bad guys <laughs> ever kill yeah. the main I agent. Mean, he kills his, his wife. No, now Axe. Yeah. <laughs> but he lets Ethan just wax him around a little bit. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Makes you wonder sometimes. The climax of the movie occurs on the outside of the train. So in this next clip, you're going to see that. This is a fantastic use of CGI and real footage. Because in this scene, Jim is trying to escape to a helicopter piloted by Krieger. It has some exciting footage of the helicopter attached to the train, and the action continues into the tunnel. It's hard to believe that in reality, the helicopter would have been able to fly like that in a tunnel, but it makes from, for some great drama. But I, I thought somebody had done some tests on this, and they thought it actually could be done. Yeah, uh, it's. I'm not sure. I, yeah. I have a hard time believing it, especially as it's banging against the walls. Yeah, you kind of need air under the blades to keep it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. The final shot of the scene is of, of the train conductor, brilliantly played by David Schneider. He looks up at the train as the train stops and he faints. The look on his face pretty much says it all. I love that shot of that guy. A lot of people right? didn't like that yeah, scene. They, there was he caught some, there was some grief I've read about that, but man, I just love the I, look on his face. I mean, it was falls a perfect over. rubber face to have up there. I mean, now it's a real face, but you know, kind of yeah, rubber yeah. looking face as he's just kind of like oh Ooh, my boom falls over and I it, totally it was good worked, too totally worked for me yeah i thought it was good so as we see you know there's a great train scene one of the best really in, in films it's a great one trains are used a lot in movies as they're a confined space with no easy escape except maybe if you've seen silver streak you ever buzz some sheep steve right i mean there's a few films that keep the action inside the train for instance, in James Bond from Russia with Love, there's a great fight scene between Bond and Red Grant. That scene happens inside of a train. Skyfall has a nice exterior fight scene. And the movie The Wolverine has something similar. Okay, there's no helicopter. I'm using a bullet train. Wolverine's on top of the train, and he's in a fight with Yakuza. From what we've been able to find, the 1926 Buster Keaton film The General and the 1929 movie The Flying Scotsman were the first movies to show action with a person on the outside of a moving train. And also you got other great train scenes, like Live and Let Die between Bond and Teehee, the big fight, The Spy Who Loved Me with uh, Bond and Jaws, Spectre, Bond and Mr. Hinks. I mean, Octopussy's got one, and there's an old spy movie called Spy Train, 1943. Exactly. It's like, there you go. Well, one of the nice things with this confined space, it's, you know, Agatha Christie, the murder on the Orient Express. Yes. People can't get off. The murderer's got to be on that train. Yes. You know, and she was actually a master of doing those type of books sure. where it was a group of people in a place where it had to be one of the people in the room. The mouse trap. That did it. Yeah. Absolutely. The film wraps with Kittredge talking with Max and letting her know that she's not going to be arrested. They can probably work out some kind of a deal. Because they really wanted Jim, who was the mole. Luther and Ethan 
have a quick chat about moving forward, and then finally Ethan is on the plane. Now this part confuses me because the flight attendant asks him the same question that they asked Jim before he got the tape mission at the beginning of the movie. Excuse me, Mr. Hunt, would you like to watch a movie? He's going to get his next assignment. But he had just told Luther that he didn't want to come back. And then yeah, he gets but they the wanted plane. him back. Well, and if Jim was gone, Ethan would have been probably promoted into Jim's spot, become yeah. the next quarterback. Next man up. But he had just said, I'm not ready to come back. The assumptive close. Now, in the Bond series, Bond usually gets some time off after a mission. Here, Ethan's on the plane, and boom, it's on to the next mission right away. So I found that was kind of an interesting way to end the film. Yeah, we really enjoyed Mission Impossible 1, and we're glad that uh, Cruise and company are doing more and have done more. It's really a great series. Well, yeah, it's a great series. I love the fact that, that Cruise does his own stunts, or the majority of his own stunts. That's different than what we see in the other movies out there uh, from the other series. Yeah, great and stories, I, great action, great acting, terrific yeah, and stuff. I, and I think that really just adds to the watchability and the reality of it. It's not somebody's face CGI'd on a guy on a motorcycle. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it very much. This is Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzotto. From SpyMovieNavigator.com, the worldwide community of spy movie fans, spy movie podcasts, videos, discussions, and more. Please continue to come back, download our podcasts, watch the videos, read our genre content, and give us your feedback, your insights, and info that you can contribute to grow the knowledge base and fun for all of us spy movie fans. Thanks. Thanks.